0: when we got into the industry we were super gung ho and very excited and wide eyed and we wanted to have everything and we wanted to do it all and obviously it takes capital and it takes experience and it takes time so even though we wanted to do it all and we felt like we'd be good at it all we only got to started with retail retail was something that we understood as you know we're a family owned business so my parents understood retail and i was able to adapt to it really quickly and and that's kind of what was our backbone of our business starting with retail and then over As we had all these retail stores coming up, we had a supply chain issue. We're like, hey, we're having to buy and source all these different products, and we're having issues with invoicing and tracking and logging, and you have to be super compliant in the cannabis space. So we decided to open a distribution company, which would help us manage the supply chain just for our our own internal dispensaries that we and our partners owned and operated.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And today I want to kick things off by giving you a little bit of a roundup of what went down last weekend. By the time this airs, maybe it'll be a couple days past, give or take some change, but Earlier this month in December, December, I believe it was third through fourth actually, took place the third annual Cowboy Cup, which is Oklahoma's premier cannabis marijuana contest, for lack of a better term. And it was my first time attending this type of event. In fact, if you've been keeping track of How many times I've been to Oklahoma in my life, the total number is now three, and they have all taken place over the last quarter, so to say that I've been to Oklahoma a lot over the past couple months is the truth, and it's been fast and furious, and in addition to that, I feel like I talk about Oklahoma more frequently probably on the podcast just because they are, you know, our neighbor here in Texas to the north, and they have a very broad cannabis program. And what I mean by broad is, man, I think prior to going to the Cowboy Cup, I had heard there were about 8,000 licenses. I'm talking no caps, no real barrier to entry. You do have to be a resident in the state of Oklahoma for some time. But if you have an idea, you have the money, you have the space, you want to go grow, produce, manufacture, retail sale, In Oklahoma, that pathway for being in the legal cannabis industry is very obvious and very apparent and very available. And so, coming to the Cowboy Cup, I learned that there were, in fact, 9,000 licenses. So, oh my gosh, so many people doing so many things. And I am not going to lie, I was a little bit like, I've never heard of a lot of these brands. So, versus like when I go to Colorado or when I go to California, you definitely see businesses that kind of rise to the top, certain brands that have gotten recognition, awareness, and I'm, I'm honestly learning what that looks like in Oklahoma. I'm learning about who those brands are and what they look like, but kind of in that capacity, you know, understanding a little bit too. That's part of why I was there. That's part of why I went to the Cowboy Cup was to get a better sense of what is going on in that market also because my fiance was doing some business there with his cannabis soil company called Comanche Compost. Shout out to them for all your soil needs. They are doing some really great stuff by using repurposed coffee grounds like waste and putting it back in with peat moss and other great nutrients for you to have great seedling soil, etc. I didn't really intend that to be a plug for them, but I love him and I want to give him a shout out for anybody who's growing out there. But that was part of why we were in Oklahoma for the Cowboy Cup. Anyways, I did what I do best. I showed up, I networked, I asked a lot of questions and I got to meet some really, really great brands. In fact, one brand I got to connect with, High Prairie, a couple of guys who are really small operation team, Love their brand, love their name. They are actually a winner of this past Cowboy Cup in one of the categories. I mean, there were so many entrants. There were so many categories. If you follow me on social media, if you go to my social media for the podcast, at To Be Blunt Pod, you will see all the great things that I captured and the content that was taken at the Cowboy Cup. I mean, it was really, truly otherworldly. Maybe you've been to the Emerald Cup before or you've been to a similar cannabis competition experience. I imagine there's not a ton of variation. It's pretty simple. You enter your products in, you vote, people vote, the judges pick, and then there's a winner in different categories. But again, kind of my first time experiencing something like that, got to try a lot of different products. Uh, I don't know if I can say that, but I did. That was really cool just to, again, see what's going on in Oklahoma. So Had a really great time at the Cowboy Cup, looking forward to the future of what's going on in Oklahoma, just being our neighbor to the north. Also, just from a cannabis program perspective, I think they're up to some really interesting stuff. But I mention all of that because today's guest, Arshad Lassi, he is the co-founder and CEO of the Nirvana Group. The Nirvana Group is a vertically integrated cannabis company that is based in Oklahoma. And so not only are they growing, they're also processing, they're manufacturing, they're distributing. They're one of the leading distributors, if not the leading distributor in Oklahoma. And they also have dispensaries. So they're kind of at all these different interjection points. And I think one of the things that I observed from the conversations that I was having on the floor of the Cowboy Cup were, you know, so many licenses. It really is hard, I think, for sometimes these brands to cut through the noise and really get their brand to shine, whether they are a grower who wants their brand to be picked up by more dispensaries or they have a branded product and they really want the consumer to seek out their products. Those are all great questions, right? And those are a lot of things that we talk about here on the podcast. And so perfect timing. Arshad's episode is going to dive into a little bit more about his perspective, running this vertically integrated behemoth of a company that is the Nirvana Group in the state of Oklahoma. We're going to get into his story. He's actually a very articulate, and I'm going to mention this because we talk about it in the podcast and it's in his bio, but he's 22 years old. He is a... Very mature cannabis entrepreneur for his age, and it reflects in the conversation. And so, I just wanted to give him some props because I genuinely appreciated the discussion that I'm about to share with you guys. So, with that said, let's welcome Arshad to the show.
0: My name is uh, Arshad Lassi, and I'm the CEO for uh, the Nirvana Group. We're based out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our story is kind of funny. We got started in the industry about three years ago with a cold email. I was in school in Houston, going to the University of Houston and my dad, he had a smoke shop business here in Oklahoma and he gets this cold email from some folks out in Michigan who were looking to sell a dispensary. And we didn't really know anything about the industry, but we got really excited and interested and we flew out to Michigan and were ready to buy this dispensary and we're all gung-ho about it. Unfortunately, when we got there, that property was sold the michigan cannabis market was was booming and everyone was trying to get into the game and we got a little discouraged but we kept looking and we went to a bunch of other states like uh, colorado and california oregon and washington uh, looking for opportunities that we could become a part of and nothing seemed to materialize a few months later we're you know kind of discouraged and we're not looking anymore and uh, oklahoma is now in the talks of legalizing a medical cannabis program. And Three years later, here we are, uh, vertically integrated and operating seven retail locations in Oklahoma, and we're in the industry.
1: I love the story because it obviously, there's like a lot of different journeys of how people get into the industry. And so, part of the benefit of having my guests introduce themselves is obviously sharing their unique path. And I think that there's multiple ways to find success in the industry in cannabis. But you know, some people come from other industries. They know they definitely want to be in the cannabis industry. It sounds like you were kind of in an ancillary space with your dad owning a smoke shop. Obviously, you know you can make assumptions of what people are buying certain paraphernalia sure. or products, and then what they're using them for. But I guess from your perspective, I'd love to kind of follow up that introduction with understanding a little bit more of. You know, I know a little bit about the Oklahoma cannabis market, but I don't know if my listeners truly know kind of the breadth of it. And so when you say Oklahoma legalized medical, you know, again, I know medical in Oklahoma is a little bit more of a broader swath versus some programs like Texas, as you're probably very familiar with. Our medical program is very immature and definitely not nearly in the same capacity as Oklahoma. So kind of what is the Oklahoma cannabis market currently like? Like how many operators are there? What do you need to get a license? Is it vertically integrated? And kind of what does that look like presently?
0: Absolutely. So Oklahoma is a very robust cannabis market. State question 788 is what legalized medical cannabis here. And there's no prerequisites to getting a medical card. So as long as you feel like you need one and and your physician will, will recommend one for you, you can acquire a medical card in the state, Kind of different from some states where they have a list of pre-existing conditions that you have to qualify for. Texas being one of the the strictest ones in the nation. And once you you know you have these pre-existing conditions, you qualify, then you qualify for the medical program in that state. Oklahoma was a little bit different there. Um, it was also the barriers to entry in Oklahoma are very low. Uh, the cost of a license is some of the, is the lowest in the nation. And the prerequisites and requirements that you as an individual or as an organization have to have were also very low. So it opened the market up to not just people who were well, well capitalized or who had a great footprint in the industry, but folks who were maybe trying to do it for the first time. A lot of business owners in the state, this was their first business venture ever. They've never owned a business prior to this. And this was the first thing they ever did. And it was part of you know the cannabis industry. It's not a vertically integrated state you can operate in any of the verticals but today we have over 8000 business licenses that are active and we've got over 2000 dispensaries over 1000 processors and over 6 to 7000 growing licenses that are currently present in the state so it's very robust and there's a lot of different people that are involved in the industry
1: Thank you for that breakdown. I guess, you know, my gut reaction is on one hand, wow, like opportunity, like you highlighted, anybody really could get in the industry, especially knowing that there were a lot of people who didn't have prior business knowledge who now saw an opportunity. I often talk on the podcast, you know, the green rush. It's, it's, it's definitely a real thing. And I don't strike anybody for being opportunistic. However, kind of the flip side of that coin, right, is the saturation of it. And so Kind of from your perspective, knowing that your family had investment from a like smoke shop perspective, and again, you can make kind of the correlation of, you know, similar clientele. Hey, we kind of understand some of the nuances of this type of customer and this industry. Like, why not us? So I can understand like why your family would want to kind of get into the industry. But you know, with eight thousand licenses, how do you start to compete against that? So kind of what has been y'all's experience from You know, 2018 to 2021, watching that market continue to open up. Would you say that? Because, like, a little bit of the sentiment, I mean, I like to be a little controversial on the podcast. You know, it's called To Be Blunt for a Reason. But I think that, again, like I highlighted before we were recording, I've been to Oklahoma now just a handful of times. So I'm not like a veteran of Oklahoma, but I do have some you know, friendlies who are operating in the space. And I, I flew out to Oklahoma City a couple weeks ago and spoke at a cannabis conference specifically featuring women. And a lot of them were in you know Oklahoma proper. And the sentiment is, you know, yeah, there's a lot of licenses and a lot of opportunity, but it's obviously really hard to get traction. And you're seeing a lot of outside multi-state operators see the opportunity in Oklahoma, just using that as one example, they're coming to Oklahoma and they're realizing their brand actually doesn't have traction, even though their brand might be massive in Michigan or California or Colorado. And so kind of given that landscape, where have you seen kind of from 2018 when you started in the industry to now 2021? I mean, you'll have a massive operation. You're you are vertically integrated. So kind of what led you to want to actually dabble in the Oklahoma cannabis market? And what do you think has allowed you to stay in business despite all the other kind of, you know, variabilities of the market that you're dealing with?
0: So the reason we got into it, it was opportunistic and it was part of this, you know, national sentiment that was changing towards cannabis. And we saw that this was an opportunity that we could prosper from. And we didn't know much about it. I personally consumed, but you know, we didn't know cultivation, extraction, how retail worked, what the culture around it was. There's a lot of things we were uh, oblivious to. And the saturation has increased over the past three years since legalization occurred here. We were one of the first dispensaries in Tulsa to open. We opened in January of uh, 2019, and we were super excited about it. And in the beginning, since there was this this hype around it, there was this rush to to buy weed legally for the first time. And it was great. And companies were getting started and everyone was in that startup phase. And now after after three years, we've seen some stability happen, but also a lot of market saturation. It's a highly competitive market. And it's very difficult for brands to be successful here if they're not able to adapt very quickly to how things change here. And this has been, I think, predominantly because there's so much there's so many licenses. There's so many people in the industry that are making something, that are trying to start something, that you have to be competitive with each other to be able to get your product into the hands of the consumer. But this has also allowed for a very quick, innovative period here in Oklahoma. We've gone through you know, a variety of and range of different products, and we keep becoming more innovative because you can't always compete on price. You have to also be a better product and be a cooler product. and and fit more with the culture. So there's been multiple different things that have kind of changed over the past few years in that way.
1: No, that's really helpful to understand too, just because again, I think, you know, poking at Texas, (laughs) you know, my home state, your home state and being so close proximity to Oklahoma, you know, there's a lot of parallels. There's also a lot of contrast. Right. And so I think some of the sentiment I get when I go to Oklahoma, is like, Oh, you know, well, we're kind of, we're learning how to do it here in Oklahoma. So when Texas opens up, you know, we can merge into Texas. And so I imagine there's a lot of people who are coming in from out of state, seeing opportunity in Oklahoma, but again, then to kind of stick it through all the different stages, I think of watching a market kind of grow and stabilize is where you start to see some people find success and some people fall off. So when you founded and started kind of the Nirvana group, there's many different kind of functions that the business has in different kind of like sub brands, so you have a distribution you know channel, and you're doing wholesale and so and you're growing, you're doing the cultivation, you're vertically integrated kind of was that immediate when you first decided, hey, we're going to go and be in this industry, or did it kind of come in pieces because of Oklahoma not requiring vertical integration? Kind of just like walk us through why you chose to be vertically integrated, and did that happen from the get-go, or was that something that you kind of added on over the years as you started to gain more market share?
0: When we got into the industry, we were super gung-ho and very excited and wide-eyed, and we wanted to have everything and we wanted to do it all. And obviously it takes capital and it takes experience and it takes time. So even though we wanted to do it all and we felt like we'd be good at it all, we only got it started with retail. Retail was something that we understood as, you know, we're a family-owned business. So my parents understood retail and I was able to adapt to it really quickly. And, and that's kind of what was our backbone of our business is starting with retail. And then over as we had all these retail stores coming up, we had a supply chain issue. We're like, hey, we're having to buy and source all these different products. And we're having issues with invoicing and tracking and logging. And you have to be super compliant in the cannabis space. So we decided to open a distribution company, which would help us manage the supply chain just for our our own internal dispensaries that we and our partners owned and operated. But that model worked because we weren't the only ones struggling with having to deal with all these different vendors and having a variety of different products. And since we were in the startup phase, I mean, invoices were done on paper by hand in an Excel sheets. like it wasn't as organized as you would expect it to be. And we brought that organization to the market a little bit. So our distribution business started to prosper. And from there, we realized that you know, we're as a distributor, we want to be in the manufacturing space, we want to be in the cultivating space, we want to have our own brands. So we started expanding those and we started expanding by manufacturing our own products. We started with edibles, we used to make and we still do chocolate bars and, and peanut butter cups and things like that. And then we got into vape cartridges and then extracts and then topicals. And now we manufacture something and we have a brand that serves every vertical of the product line. And it took us a long time to get here. Just this year alone is when we got into the the massive scale of cultivation and extraction that we would consider more commercial.
1: Got it. And so when you're operating all these You know, like going from a dispensary retail ownership, obviously, you do need a license. And so, what is that process like? Like, do you have to get a different license for each of these different types of businesses? Like, from my understanding, and this is just kind of good food for thought, I think, for the listeners to understand, right? You know, people, I think, assume legalization is kind of like flipping a light switch on. And maybe in some cases there's, you know, a hundred licenses in some cases, maybe it's a little bit more limited. There's 10 licenses per state or per county or whatever. And knowing, you know, in reflection, Florida is very limited licensure. They only have, I think, 14 operating licenses and they have to be vertically integrated and they're totally medical only. Oklahoma is only medical as well, but they're not vertically integrated required. And so cultivation is a separate license. Retail is a separate license. Knowing that it's accessible, like there's no caps on licenses is kind of one aspect, I think of you know, a checkbox, like, oh, okay, you know I'm not fighting for one of 30 licenses, so it makes it a little bit more attainable. But kind of was acquiring licenses or applying for licenses really challenging? Or was it pretty much like, hey, you want to cultivate? Like come pay your fees and submit your information, and now you're awarded a cultivation license. Like I just want to get a feel for what does licensing look like in Oklahoma? Process-wise, like like you go into the, it, it's OMA right, Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Association. I think is the acronym.
0: I think it's authority, and it, it's like you described. It's very easy to get a license here. The requirements are, you know, you have to be a state resident. Seventy-five percent of the organization has to be an Oklahoma resident for a certain amount of years. You also have to be above the age of twenty-five with no uh, felonies in, in your record. And if you check those boxes you essentially qualify for a license.
1: Super easy enough, except you and I know it's probably much more <laughs> harder once you actually get awarded that license, like maintaining it and that, actually delivering yeah. what your you know promises to whoever you're in business for, right?
0: Of course. I mean, it's running the business is the difficult part and it's different in other states. In some states, it's very expensive and very complex to get a license. It usually requires an attorney, in some cases, a team of attorneys to accomplish that here, the first, we did it ourselves, you know, we weren't super capitalized, we were a startup, I applied for almost a and I still even to date, I handle the renewals myself, because it doesn't require an attorney's attention is that you know, I applied for the first dozen licenses on my own, from my laptop, sometimes at in school when I was a year (laughs) of age. That's um, so cool. I'd be sitting there filling them out and uploading all the documents. And it was an online portal. You uploaded the documents and you, you submitted, you paid, and, and then it was, you were done. And then you waited for the state to respond.
1: That's what I was going to ask. Was it like an immediate, because because there, there's no caps on licensing. Was it like, great, you paid your fee, you submitted documents, it looks good. You know, 24 hours later, you get awarded the license. Or does it take like some process, like maybe a couple of weeks or something?
0: They had a law that within uh, a certain amount, a number of weeks, you would have to get a response. Oh, wow. It was required by law. The, the OMMA, they had to work as hard as they could. And they really did. They worked extra long hours and they had to, I mean, a lot of people were put into this position where, you know cannabis is new. You've opened this new medical marijuana authority and it's like, okay, go figure it out. And they did a good job with what they could, but now they've changed it. They've given them more time. Now they have a 90 day response period. So they can review your application for a period of 90 days and then they can respond back with uh, approval or a rejection, which is really like a correction. Like, Hey, some document was not uploaded correctly or it's missing a signature or something or the other, and then you can go in and fix it.
1: Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And, you know, I think it's, uh, I guess some of the feedback, again, I've heard from Oklahoma is, it isn't a perfect, you know, process, there is definitely some nuance to it and being patient and understanding, you know, it's a new program for the state and how that program gets rolled out and implemented, you know, you're kind of learning as you go. So, you know it's just it's fascinating for me to understand because again I spend so much time on the podcast talking to people representing all these different states representing all these different programs and it's just so wild to me as we try to fight for federal legalization it's like well what program are we adopting you know it'd be great if there was the vision and the opportunity of knowing hey if, if federal legalization happens They're going to allow anybody to get a license, maybe take an Oklahoma model. But I have a feeling, unfortunately, I don't think that the federal legalization is going to be quite as open as Oklahoma's is. So it's been a fun market to kind of watch and observe. And I'm sure from your perspective of being in it, it's equally as wild just to be like, yeah, this is kind of, you know, what we're up against. Because, I mean, you talked about earlier, you know, kind of dealing with a supply chain. And so I am curious both a little bit from the Oklahoma perspective, as well as just, you know, owning dispensaries in general. What is that process like when you are trying to put products on the shelf, right? And and using Oklahoma as the example where it's a new market, you don't have, I mean, like when they legalized cannabis, there wasn't a ton of time between legalization and awarding licenses to where there was a ton of products in the market, right? It took time to ramp up the industry. So when you're talking about you as a dispensary owner looking for who are your vendors, what are products you're going to put on the shelf? I mean, I'm just curious what that looks like given the parameters of a state regulated program, like prior to your distribution company, like how did you find brands to put on your shelves and sell were these brands or vendors coming and knocking on your door were they reaching out via email was it a very haphazard like mash of like if you're lucky you got your brain in a dispensary and if you weren't like you're shit out of luck or also knowing you know there was such a uh, supply and demand challenges and maybe there still are presently today but you know hey, if you have the supply, well, we'll put you on the shelves because our, you know, other brands that are chocolates or cartridges, you know, we completely sold out of and they're behind production. And so they're not going to get to us to market for the next weeks or months or whatever the case may be. So I'm just curious again, as you're trying to, you know, stair step your way up in this industry, it's legal. You have a dispensary crap. What am I putting on the shelves? Kind of where do you start from there? Hello, just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister. So we are family owned and women owned. We do operate a brick and mortar in Austin. So if you ever find yourself in Central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code to be blunt for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks. And let's go back to the show.
0: In the beginning, it was very interesting and odd how we found vendors and brands. It would be Instagram or Oklahoma was good about this is they had a published list of everyone who has a license. Mm-hmm. Here's the email phone number, you know? So we would just go on that list, print it out and start calling. Hey, what do you got? What's the price? Is it good? Is it bad? Send me pictures. You know, what does it look like? Uh, send me the lab reports, whatever we could get from them. And then we would have to just carry everything. And you really couldn't be choosy of, oh, I don't like this or I don't like that because you needed something to put on your shelves so you could supply your customers. Now that's a lot, right? In the past three years, we've had so much innovation. So now you can be very choosy and you can be very selective and different dispensers at different models. Some carry a certain range of products that serves a certain type of customer and they're maybe more expensive or less expensive. or more geared towards older patients or younger patients or whatever the case is. So now we've seen a lot of differences like that occur. And the supply chain shortage during COVID was something even more unique because you have oil and you have product, but you don't have packaging
1: oh, or you sure. don't have
0: labels, don't have you know bags or these ancillary products to be able to put your products into. So it's been an interesting uh, couple of years and the ups and downs. And, and now we're starting to see some more stability as things go back to, to normalcy.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, just on the packaging side alone, I mean, obviously COVID has impacted us in so many different ways, but- I don't think people really, especially the consumers, right? Like even just reflecting on our own business, we had a hiccup with some of our packaging and we just, we couldn't get a certain pop-top that we've been using for some of our flour. And customers are like, oh, you know, do you change packaging? It's like, no, not because I wanted to, because I couldn't get the packaging that I originally, you know, had mapped out for this product. And so having to kind of navigate around both known and unknown hurdles, is definitely something that I think adds to, again, that complexity of trying to navigate. Okay. I want to be in the cannabis industry. I want to bring these products to market. Like now, how do I go play that game? So kind of on the flip side from a customer perspective, kind of what has that journey been from your experience navigating both the manufacturing now of, I mean, I read you have over a thousand SKUs. I mean, that's not a small sum of SKUs to be operating. What kind of thought process goes? And I mean, is it like, hey, we're mapping these products to, and maybe this is kind of a, a supplementary question to that. You know, are there rules around how many milligrams in an edible you can sell or certain caps on concentrates? Like I know Colorado's trying to instigate some concentrate caps. From a medical perspective, there's definitely a little bit more headway in terms of how many milligrams can be per serving. Versus a recreational market. And so, given that Oklahoma is all under the cap of medical, you know, is it, is it, are y'all driving what the products should be from a manufacturing perspective? Are you trying to stay in line with some of what regulation is asking you? Is regulation asking you or pressing you to do anything? Or is it the consumer? Like, if I'm being really honest, I mean, you just touched on the public list of all the licensees in, in Oklahoma. And so, when I was going to Oklahoma for my first, conference a couple weeks, uh, months ago now at this point, I was curious. I do the podcast. I'm like, okay, Oklahoma, let's go see who's playing. Like, What are the brands? And I'm really big on social media and and I was very shocked to find uh, not a lot of brands were actually on social media. It seems like anybody really truly can create a cannabis brand in Oklahoma and who their marketing customer is, I'm not sure. But I saw somebody is, um, I don't necessarily need to say their brand name out loud, but I'm sure you probably have heard of them they sell pizza. They own a pizza shop, like independently, no cannabis associated to it. And then they now have a license to make cannabis pizza. And so I was like, damn, how many milligrams? And I think I saw some like 250 milligrams per pizza, like a whole cheese pizza is infused with cannabis and and that's legal. And and I don't know how they sell that. If your dispensary has to have a freezer, what the case looks like, but again, kind of circling back to the original question, there's not a lot of rules from my understanding. And so I'm curious if there are rules, is it the consumer who's driving what products they want to see, i.e. cannabis and pizza, or is it the state who's guiding, hey, you can have max this many milligrams and kind of how do you navigate what the market is providing the space for you to go and create as well as what, you know, the customer is actually wanting to consume.
0: So the state doesn't have much regulatory language around how many milligrams in each serving Mm -hmm. or per unit or whatever the case is, which has allowed brands to get very creative. You know, the average milligram in in an edible is 100 milligrams, right, in one unit. And usually there's 10 pieces in there and each piece is 10 milligrams. And that's kind of where we got started as well. That was the standard. But now you've got so much competition, how do you set yourself apart? Well, I'm going to offer you 150 milligrams for the same price as 100, and that was the second step some brands took. And then it got into, well, I'm going to give you 250 milligrams flat. And and as you scale up, you know, your the hard costs of your ingredients don't change as much. It's really just the cannabis cost that changes. You're you can be pretty competitive. And this kept going and going until we hit this brand. They launched a product with a thousand milligrams in it, edible, and each gummy was 100 milligrams per unit. So initially, we were like, that's insane. That's crazy. Who's going to eat this? You're going you know, to fall asleep forever. Um, like, Who even wants to consume that much cannabis in one setting? And we were all astonished when that became the top-selling gummy distribution and retail for us. People loved it. They, they were getting a great value for it, but they also just loved consuming that much cannabis in one time. I mean, people, the, the culture here is that they'll eat 100 milligrams as one serving you know? And in other places, 10 milligrams is considered one serving. And that shaped a lot of things, other brands then had to adapt. If you didn't make a thousand milligram gummy or edible, you kind of fell short because that's what consumers wanted. And it's gotten to the point where now we make a thousand milligram chocolate bar under our brand called Sunrise, but we're about to start manufacturing a 2000 milligram chocolate bar under the same label. And that's not even the max. There's a company out here that makes a four thousand milligram plus chocolate bar, and it's popular. People like it, and this has kind of been shaped by by consumers, by by the patients, by people wanting more value for their money. And because the state doesn't have any language around saying no, they've gotten that.
1: That's so radical to me. I mean, on one hand, I'm totally pro self-regulating, right? As a consumer, if I can buy more milligrams at a value and I know then educated myself how to eat, what my body will respond to, whether it's medical or recreation, right? It's like, I personally know I can't handle more than 20 milligrams of THC. I've been a lifelong cannabis consumer and 20 milligrams is like my sleepy time sweet spot. Day-to-day, I love to microdose. That's just my personal preference. And so I'm never out here to be the police of like, oh, you should like cap milligrams, right? But it is just so interesting when it's under the the hat of medical, right? And so we don't have to get into it a ton, but I am curious your thoughts on it being promoted as medical and kind of how the medical community in Oklahoma has, I guess, adopted these higher milligram products. Like you said, it's the competition of the market. It's like, well, if I'm not going to do it and then the cust I mean, the brand over there is going to do it. Well, the customer is going to go to that brand because it's the the cost per value of something. But when you're speaking to it from a medical perspective, I mean, are you seeing the doctors are saying, you know, and I know the answer a little bit, like everybody's tolerance is different. So like my sister compared to me, she can have a hundred milligrams as a dose and she's fine. Like literally fine. We took her to MJ BizCon a couple of weeks ago and she was gobbling up every like edible at every after party. And I was like, geez, like you're going to passed out and she was fine. She ate a 50 milligram ice cream cone. I was like, I'm sleepy and I only had a bite of it, you know? And so I understand different tolerance. So I'm not saying it's not medical, but I am curious when there is so much variance in medical conversations around cannabis, what Oklahoma is doing is really radical to me. And so I don't know if you can just speak to that from your experience.
0: Well, I think it's interesting because it's, you know, cannabis is something that's very unique. We have a very limited understanding of it. It's it's only been available to us in this form so openly, and not even to everybody, for a very short period of time, if you look at the relative scale of things. And it's kind of hard to judge, you know, how much one should consume. And I think the state, you know, I, I think there is a positive outcome of the state having maybe a maximum or a minimum in a single serving. If you're an uneducated consumer, it's your first time and you think you're supposed to eat the whole bag eating a whole bag of a hundred versus eating a whole bag of a thousand is very different. Right. And yes, they have labels and things on them, but you know, the same way we don't want to make packaging appealing to children, things of that nature. There should be some restrictions there, but I don't think there should be a restricted restriction. If you know, the consumers want it, they should be able to have the option to consume. It's hard to say what's a safe limit because you can't really overdo cannabis. You can get sick, but obviously you can feel ill and it can not suit you, but there's, it's not like drinking where, you know, after a certain limit, your body will start to to, to, to get sick or die or, or or whatever the case is. So I think it's going to take some time for that to to really shake out.
1: No, I completely agree and appreciate your perspective on it. It just is, as you can imagine, and especially coming from Texas, it's like a lot of us are looking at Oklahoma and we're like, what are they doing and is it working, you know, and is that a something to kind of like aspire to see as, again, we kind of inch towards federal legalization and as different programs continue to evolve and adopt. And, and I agree, we we certainly have more research to be done and more understanding around the plant. But in terms of what research has been done, there haven't been any dramatic revelations around you know, overconsumption compared to alcohol or other opioids and drugs like that. So I I appreciate that. Kind of want to transition a little bit to, you know, one, you're in a family brand. I come from a family business myself. I own a CBD brand with my sisters here in Austin, and you're also a young, younger CEO. I, I normally wouldn't necessarily call out someone's age, but you know, your publicist kind of highlighted it as a talking point. and and I have to give you some, you know some applause because you're very understanding and articulate about what's going on in your market. And so I think that is just a testament to the passion and care that you are displaying through your company and through, you know, just all aspects of operations that you're putting forth. But, yeah, I'm curious, kind of like, what has it been like being a younger CEO? in an emerging market, in an emerging state like Oklahoma and operating such a massive cannabis brand like you've built with the Nirvana Group?
0: It's been a lot of fun. The short version is it's been a lot of fun. It was really, you know, kind of, I've had businesses in the past. I had a, a t-shirt business I started in high school where we wanted to donate a portion of the sales to, to the World Wildlife Fund. And then after that, yeah, I started a small advertising agency. So I've, I've had this like entrepreneurial spirit. My family, we're all a group of entrepreneurs. My parents have been entrepreneurs their whole lives. And transitioning from managing, uh, you know, a small startup with your friends or on your own, kind of working on your own time to then being put in this position of a lot of responsibility and a lot of moving parts. It's been very interesting, but it's, it's been a challenge. Uh, we went from in the very beginning having you know one dispensary to two dispensaries to five, and managing maybe 30 employees, and now we have over 150 employees. So that that change and being able to adapt to that while still going to school has been interesting, but it's also been a lot of fun working with my family, and that has its pros and cons. I'm South Asian, so my parents are pretty tough, and um, and they have a lot of you know expectations for us. And it's been interesting having to work with them and making mistakes and then getting scolded by your parents and by your bosses at the same time. But, it, it, you know, they've given me a lot of insight and guidance, which has kind of been the reason I think we've come this far because we're able to work together and put our collective knowledge together and, and accomplish things.
1: Yeah, I really respect that. My parents are small business owners and entrepreneurs themselves. And my dad's a Middle Eastern immigrant, and I often get asked, you know, a lot, does your dad know, do your parents know what you do? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm in business with my sisters. My, my family, we're all live in Austin still. So I actually, my retail storefront, we only have one dispensary and one brick and mortar here in Austin, but my dispensary is at the corner of a unit. And my dad actually owns an insurance agency and we share, you know, like we're next door neighbors essentially. And so it's very much like, yeah, my family is very knowledgeable of what I'm doing and they're very supportive. And I think that's just something that I equally try to champion. I'm not nearly maybe as young as you, but I am in my early thirties and definitely got into entrepreneurship at a younger age myself. And I, I look forward to helping professionalize the cannabis conversation. That's partially what this podcast has allowed me to do, but also kind of, I think represent maybe different cultures and backgrounds and changing people's perspectives. Like I certainly get a lot of friends um, from my dad's culture, Iranian culture that they're like, man, I would like kill to, you know, be able to be in cannabis and have my parents even understand that I smoke pot, let alone like work in the industry. And so I don't take it for granted, but I do see, you know, people like yourselves as well, being able to step up and have the support of your family to help help shape a conversation that has been so stigmatized prior. I can only imagine the impact that in your community and and in your family and friends live as a result of just seeing the great work that you're able to do by pushing this forward in the way that y'all have. So just wanted to kind of call out some props.
0: I appreciate that. It's been great. I mean, it, it is a blessing to be able to be a part of this industry, which has had this stigma or this taboo around it. And then your parents are cool with it. And not, not, not only are they cool with it, but they're they're, they're here at the, you know, at the deal, at the table, making those decisions with you and supporting your decisions the entire way. So it's been a real blessing.
1: Yeah, definitely. I can understand and relate completely. I definitely also wanted to transition a little bit into getting some future site and hear a little bit about kind of what, what do you think's next? Like what's happening next for the Nirvana group? I saw that y'all have a great partnership with Toast I don't know if it's launching or if it's presently launched, but definitely wanted to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, they're a recognizable cannabis brand and they're from Colorado. And so just kind of curious what that partnership is affording y'all to kind of level up and do, as well as maybe some insights as to what you see kind of happening in Oklahoma cannabis in 2022.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Toast has been a great partnership that it has launched. We just launched it a couple of weeks ago it's a wonderful brand run by an amazing group of people that that i'm actually meeting with later today i'm here in oklahoma and we've had a lot of success with their products they've got these a a great brand with great packaging and beautiful presentation and they many they make these you know really great pre-rolls and we're hoping to take them into the next level here in oklahoma over the next year we're excited about what's to come in oklahoma we're looking forward to recreational being a topic of conversation. It's been something that we all want because we think the market can support that. And it's definitely going to be prosperous for everyone who's involved. And we think that, you know, it's time for us to make that change. We're just not sure when the legislators and the government is going to be on the same page with us and is going to be ready for that transition. And I think there is a little bit of work that needs to be done with Oklahoma's current um, status of how medical is operated and, and what the regulations are before we make that big jump, and as for our company, you know, we're also looking at different markets. We feel like we've had a good foothold here, and we've learned a lot in Oklahoma. And there's other markets that we think we'd be successful in, and if not ourselves as operators, we have a house of brands we think that could do well in those markets and would be supported by those markets. So we're looking forward to seeing um, where we can go grow into in 2022.
1: Yeah, I bet it's really exciting, especially covering the different, you know, aspects of the industry that you're able to kind of play in and seeing different opportunities to maybe, you know, whether it's opening a dispenser under the same brand in another market or taking an edible or a product that you've created and, and go manufacture it in a new state a new market. It's definitely, you know, I'm sure lots to learn, but lots to also look forward to as the industry continues to evolve and unpack. So I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of share all this stuff with us. And I look forward to coming to Oklahoma and checking out your dispensaries, visiting Tulsa. Are y'all just in, well, actually I'm assuming I'm kind of, you know, answering the question, maybe a little bit myself. Oklahoma's from a market perspective, there's really, I'm going to say only Tulsa and Oklahoma city. Maybe there's some other bigger cities, but for the most part, Oklahoma is, is, pretty small towns so, in between. So how does that kind of operation look like from a dispensary model for y'all?
0: So those are the two largest. Oklahoma City is the largest city of the capital. Tulsa is mm-hmm. the second largest. And, and most of the culture and um, the, the brands and, and the livelihood that you see around cannabis happens in those two cities. And, and the two cities have a very different culture. Separate from cannabis, they have a different culture. And then the way cannabis it interacts with that. You'll see that there's differences in how brands are marketed and which brands are successful on which side of the state, even though we're a small state. And then there are other small, robust markets in smaller towns and localities mm-hmm. um, like Durant, Bartlesville and Ardmore. There are definitely a lot of dispensaries in those towns. And people purchase and consume products there, but they're very different from what you'd see in the larger cities like Oklahoma City, for you know, for example.
1: Whether you have been to Oklahoma or you're currently operating in the Oklahoma market, I think that Arshad shared a lot of really good insight into how him and his family approached not only Oklahoma cannabis, which is its own beast compared to every other state, but really how they just approached cannabis business in general. They kind of crawled before they ran. They mentioned that they had invested in retail first and foremost. Once they nailed that, then that was a natural expansion into kind of distribution. And I thought it was just a really great point to re-highlight for you guys because people want to do everything they want to do it all and in a state like oklahoma where vertical integration is not required it can be a big undertaking if you take it on all at once and especially with some of these states requiring vertical integration from the get-go that can be a lot of capital that you have to invest up front and a lot of skills and maybe hiring that you have to invest in as well just to ensure that you have every kind of point of that check and balance balanced And I really, again, appreciated how Arshad's family and himself approached everything. And I think what he shared in this episode was really insightful, not only from how do I navigate Oklahoma cannabis, but how do I navigate cannabis business in general, which is, again, one of the points that I always try to drive home for you guys. So I really hope this episode was informative and educational. And as always, if you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, Please don't hesitate to reach out and connect with me on social media. I am here to connect with you guys and really want to say thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the To Be Bomb podcast. So with that said, I'm signing out and I'll see you guys next Monday with a brand new episode. But if you're curious, please go check all the previous episodes. They're dope and I've covered a lot of really great topics and relevant information for you guys love this episode of to be blunt be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect new episodes come out on mondays and for more behind the scenes follow along on instagram at theshadatarabi